Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. We're going to dive a little bit now into the details of being a trustee. We're lucky enough to have Marguerite Lorenz, who is based in California. She's a master trustee and the managing partner of Lorenz Private Trustees. She's also the author of Ethics for Trustees 2.0, and she's going to help us navigate the world of fiduciary responsibilities and some of the things that many people in our industry maybe are thinking about but don't know much detail on. And with that, welcome aboard, Marguerite. Well, thank you so much, Fraser. I'm so excited to be here with you. I guess we found each other on LinkedIn in the general digital world. It's amazing all the different relationships that happen. I look forward to meeting you in person whenever that is, whenever the virus goes away. Well, you're always welcome to visit the warmth of California. Here in New York, it's 28 degrees and I'm ready for it. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the, what's called the fiduciary industry and the concept that you have for being a good trustee. Originally, I'd been working in financial services. I had worked in the internal audit department for Sun America Financial, and then I was working for Choir Financial. And my mom, Jane Lorenz, was a CPA who had started taking on the work as a professional trustee. And over the years, as our lives continued to roll out, I got offered an amazing job as a national director of marketing for a software company that would have replaced the services offered by Choir Financial, the company I was working for. And I told mom about this job opportunity. Well, I'd have to leave California and go to Phoenix and start over again. And she realized I was willing to leave Los Angeles and asked if I would move instead to be her partner and moved down to Fallbrook, California, which is just a little town north of San Diego. And I said yes, and became her partner. I lived on her property in a trailer with my two little boys for two and a half years so I could shadow her and go with her to her meetings and really start to understand this work. It's a very intimate job. I've seen it up close. You are in there with your clients and you're seeing them through thick and thin. What was your academic background going into it? I came from a legal background, not particularly in trust in the states or anything like that, but I had a smattering of experiences that got me in touch with fiduciary concepts. What was your background or did you learn it on the job and you looked at what happened with your clients and took your lessons from that? It's really on-the-job training. I did a couple of years of community college, and I got to go live in New York City and had what dad would say, I earned my MBA the hard way. I don't have a formal academic background. What I do have is a heart for detail and also for doing the right thing for the right reasons. To sort of get into your book, The Ethics for Trustees 2.0, it comes out very clearly that you have a deep understanding of the responsibilities and the duties that trustees have for their clients in helping them effectuate their goals to do it within the confines of the trust, to do it within the broader legal confines of California and any other jurisdiction that's in place. Maybe tell us a little bit about where the book writing experience came in. I'm sure that was part of the synthesis of your experience in integrating that into a playbook that people could use in dealing with their affairs. 
I appreciate that, Fraser. Thank you so much. I've always been a writer and always been a reader. And I really appreciate clear communication. And as I've gotten to know more professionals and more clients through this work, I realize how little they really understand about the intimacy, as I mentioned, and also the depth that we go to. Keep in mind that I'm not just serving as a trustee. I'm also serving as an agent under the power of attorney for finance, executor of the will, and even as agent under the advanced healthcare directive. Many professionals who serve as trustees and work with trust companies never serve in that role. It's that depth of experience actually doing the work and having to explain what I'm doing. I know it's true for you too. We have to get very good at letter writing, don't we? We have to get good at explaining some things that are emotionally difficult for people to receive. That's really where my writing experience and my background made this possible for me to write the book. I get asked all the time this big 50,000 foot question, which is what is a trust and why would I think about needing one? And there's lots of ways to answer that. I tend to say that all trusts have these components. They have a grantor or someone who sets up the trust. They have beneficiaries, those people who are going to benefit from the trust. The trust itself is going to hold the property. And then there is a trustee who is responsible for that property. And they're responsible for effectuating the wishes of the grantor, safeguarding the property, investing the property, and distributing the property for those beneficiaries that I just described who are going to benefit from the trust. Does that square with your thinking? Or do you have a different definition that you use with your clients or people that are asking me that question? I would say yes, and to help people understand it, especially those who don't yet have a trust, I want you to think of trustor and trustee like you think of employer and employee. You may not always be the trustee of your own trust, but you will always be the trustor. And at some point, you have to give up the control. Well, who are you giving the control to? Well, it'd be someone that you selected. And the only way to select that person is to actually have the written instrument that you signed and dated that says that you're giving that authority to this other person to do the work. And when do they go to work? Incapacity, resignation, or death. That's great color. And I have to confess, I'm going to steal parts of that and add that to mine because I think it's really useful. There are many different relationships going on here. Many times there's a lot of overlapping amongst the relationships. When those roles and responsibilities aren't clearly defined for families at the outset, that's where I find that a lot of conflict comes into play. And ultimately, there are going to be diverging interests at some point. But you want to limit the conflict going forward. That's when things get expensive and damaging. And I like the way you did that with the juxtaposition of the trustor and the trustee, because that's a very important relationship in helping people understand what's happening there. Well, let me add another thought to that. Who is the first beneficiary of the trust? It's the trustor. A lot of people go into planning for their trust and they don't realize how much power they have and that they are very much the ones that need this help and concern because vulnerability is part of what we're planning for. Think about airplane ride. We have to put our own oxygen mask on first before we address the oxygen mask for the children. Why? Because we have to know that we're okay and then we can give some of it away. So in estate planning, like your oxygen mask, you have to make sure that there's someone in place to deal with your medical issues. If you fell down and hit your head, you can't be the one to sign the check. You can't be the one to decide what groceries to buy or what investments to make. So this becomes a very important role that you're asking someone to fulfill for you 
who must, with their fiduciary duty, put you first. Typically, parents put their children first. So now you're asking the children to be that fiduciary. It's very challenging. And it doesn't matter if you're an expert estate planning attorney. When it's your own mom, you're going to have conflicts. It's a natural conflict of interest. And we talk about that in the book. The duties of a trustee, when someone comes to you and says, Marguerite, I've got this structure. This has been laid out to me by an attorney. They think it's a good idea for tax reasons or asset protection reasons or wealth structuring reasons. When you're onboarding a situation, how do you explain to them what the duties of a trustee are? There are a variety of duties. And I want to remind everyone who's listening that there's a probate code, the body of law that governs the things that we're talking about today. And it's different for every state. Add on top of that, that every single trust written is unique, meaning you can grant powers and duties to your trustee in the very document that you sign. It's almost like creating law for your estate. The general duties, we have a duty to account. I have a duty to secure. So I can't just account for the things that I have. I need to discover and make sure that I found everything. So this is a moment where I want to say, if you have named someone to be your successor trustee, please give them the opportunity for success, not just by buying a copy of the book for them, but also by letting them know they have the job. How am I to communicate or know what you want if you don't tell me? And the legal documents are a great source for some information, but it's not all of it. Part of that duty to account and gathering all the information, another duty is to communicate impartially with all of the beneficiaries. So you can imagine now the eldest child has gotten the job to be trustee and he has to reach out to the sister he hasn't spoken to in 10 years to let her know that mom died, one, and two, now there's a trust in play, and three, she's entitled to official notice And she's entitled to information whether he feels like giving it to her or not. Some of the duties can be very challenging depending on who's serving. As we dive into that, you've built a firm around being a good trustee for other people's affairs. What are the facets or the characteristics, whether at the individual level or just generally, that you think people should look for in having a good trustee, someone who's going to get the work done, who's going to make tough calls if that has to happen, if there's discretion that needs to happen around decisions. How do you think about that? And I guess in summary around that whole question is, what do you think makes a good trustee? To begin with, I think someone who's naturally organized mentally and physically, meaning there's a lot to track. You can imagine all the documents. And for those people who are listening and at home, if you look around, your office is filled with papers. Maybe you're really organized and you do everything online. That means that that person has to be able to find all that information and keep it organized when they become the authority, when they become the person who's responsible for it. Add to that, you need to be great at developing resources. I can't physically do all the jobs an elderly client might need, but I know who to hire and I also know who not to hire. So that's part of it. You know, when you have a family member trustee, typically they only have this one case that they'll ever work on or have ever worked on for their parents. But for someone like me, we've had so much experience with so many different cases. I also have a cadre of wonderful professionals to rely on to get the work done. Add to that, we have great internal controls in our office. For many who would aspire to have be as organized as a trust company, for instance, or a bank, 
We have excellent compliance and we make sure that things are done properly. Also, laws change, rules change, banking procedures change. You have to be nimble and flexible in your thinking about it because we have to get the work done. We have to focus on the needs of the client first. I have medical people I can hire and so on. Add to that another quality is to be calm when there's a crisis. People have big feelings around the incapacity or death of their parents. They're afraid. Maybe they feel guilty. Maybe they feel concerned about other family members. And you have to accept those concerns and you have to weave it into the communications that you have with people. We want to be considerate. We want to be thoughtful. And we also have to be consistent. Sometimes I don't answer a phone call from a beneficiary because I have to communicate with all of them impartially and equally. So there might be one beneficiary who's the one who calls all the time, the one who has those questions, and they tend to be excellent questions. Great. Now I take those questions. I write up my responses. Now all the beneficiaries get to benefit from that interaction and get to get the answers to those questions. Those are just some of the qualities I think of when I think of a good trustee. With the place that I work at Pendleton, we are a corporate trustee, but with a sliver of that. We are an administrative trustee, so we take on some of the functions of a trustee, and then other functions like the investment management or the distribution decisions are taken on by others that are handpicked by the client or the advisory team. You have a unique way of doing things where, in a sense, your firm is a collection of people who act as that full individual trustee. Is that right? I'll refine it a little bit, Fraser, and that is that it's my name that goes into the document, and I'm often succeeded in name with my other partners. I'm one of five partners in my firm. We're unusual that we actually have an in-house succession plan, and I think it'll go on for decades because my nephews are only 9 and 11. They don't even know they're working for me yet. Our focus is to get the job done. And as I said, we use these other resources. But what's unique to us is that I'm actually named as an individual. I am licensed by the state of California to do this work. And we will talk a little bit about licensing in this conversation. But it's unique to California. No other state has licensing for the fiduciaries that serve. And as a licensed fiduciary, I'm the one who's responsible And yes, I'm able to delegate certain things, but ultimately it's my signature on every form. It's my signature on every check. Let's dive into that with the California licensing for a little bit since we're on topic there. As you said, California is the only state where individual trustees are licensed. And when we first talked and I heard about that, it fired a synapse that I knew about a little bit, but I didn't know much about. And it's an alien concept in New York. It's alien in Delaware, Tennessee, all the other states. Maybe talk a little bit about that framework. What does the licensing do, aside from providing the accreditation that you have experience and some training in the field, how does that work? And why did California feel the need to have licensing around individual trusteeships? Let's look at how trusts normally get done and everywhere else. There's a document that gets drafted. Who drafts the document? It's the attorney. On the East Coast, it's very normal for the drafting attorney to also eventually serve as the trustee of the trust. Well, in California, we see that as a potential conflict of interest. That's a difference. And then you have trust companies and banks who serve as trustees. They don't draft the documents themselves. There's an attorney who drafts those documents, and they eventually get to serve as trustee. And many of them also sell financial products. So we're in a system where Some conflicts of interest are accepted, and that's just how it is. 
In California, we had a statewide registry where CPAs and attorneys and professional fiduciaries and other people who served in this important role were listed. And at least there was some background check for them through the Department of Justice. And then there was a real desire to have an actual license because here's the thing, you can get a certification. Like I have a certification, I'm a certified trust and fiduciary advisor through the American Banking Association. It's a very common designation out there. Pretty much anyone can get it if they do the work. But if I do bad things, I don't necessarily lose that CTFA designation. Someone would have to work with that entity to see if they could get that designation removed. Well, with a license, you could really lose your livelihood if you do bad things. And there's actually an investigative body and there's actually teeth to it. It's important that there's no unlicensed activity. There still is in pockets. Attorneys and CPAs are exempt from licensing. But here's the point I want to make. Attorneys who are trained to be attorneys and CPAs and even doctors are advisors. They advise the decision maker. Well, at some point in time, the trustor, the decision maker, can no longer make those decisions. And that's when the trustee takes over. Our training is to become that decision maker, even to the point like in conservatorship, which is called guardianship everywhere but California. The idea is that you're supposed to be able to use substituted judgment, meaning that we have to take the highest and best for that client in mind and do our best to make decisions for the benefit of that person. It's not just a business transaction then. It's not just advising a decision maker. I become the decision maker. It's a little different. And that's why there was so much energy behind licensing. And in fact, my mom sat on the judicial committee to help design some of the laws surrounding this work. In your experience and with your different clients that you've brought on and you take on that role, what are some of the traps that you are able to avoid or at least try to avoid that you see other trustees licensed, hopefully, or maybe sometimes not licensed or maybe in other states that you see that they fall into? Are there any stories of things that people should keep their eye on when dealing with their trustee or understanding before they make a selection? We're supposed to avoid even the appearance of an impropriety or conflict of interest. That's a very high standard. Let me give you an example. So I'm at a client's home. My initial client, the trustor has died. And now her disabled daughter, her little girl was 77 when mom passed away. Little girl, 77 years old, never able to live independently, will never be able to live independently. Now I have to move that individual from her longtime home to a boarding care or someplace that we can place her where the money will last her whole lifetime and she'll get all the care she needs. And I have a lot of furniture in this house. And I decided to rent out the house so that we'd have some income produced for this particular individual as opposed to just selling it. Because at the time, investments were low and real estate was high and that kind of thing. You have to think about all those factors. And the would-be property manager said, wow, I really like that dining room set. When are you going to have an estate sale? And I had to be the one to say, oh, no, no, no. You don't get to purchase this dining room set because... I can't let anybody think you took advantage of your position in this matter. And she was really upset. Those are uncomfortable conversations when you have to remind people of the neutrality that you have to approach 
your position with. And when they remember that they aren't neutral in their particular position, sometimes that can be a shock. Down to a dining room set, I've had to actually put up walls, so to speak, to protect the whole project, to protect the whole trust and say, this particular professional doesn't understand her fiduciary duties in this matter. So even the caregiver who wants to buy the walker from a decedent's estate, even if they're offering twice what I would get for it in some other circumstance, we have to make sure that things are handled appropriately so that we don't have any problems later. The two functions that I talked about before that in many states you're able to delegate away from one particular trustee are the investment piece and the distribution piece. You guys don't manage money. I don't manage money either. So I'm used to dealing with the asset managers or financial advisors who take on that role. Where do you see disconnect sometimes in that relationship when the financial advisor is managing assets and maybe they don't have a full grasp of what you're trying to worry about in fulfilling the trustee role? There's a few different things that come to mind. What is the purpose of this trust? Is it because we have an ongoing trust where we're going to be taking care of someone? Or is the goal to settle the estate and distribute the funds so that the beneficiaries can take the money and do whatever they want with it? And depending on those purposes, now we have to do some planning. So if I'm looking to consolidate, go to cash on everything, some financial advisors are like, oh no, an independent trustee, they're only going to take the money away from me. That's not what's happening. What's happening is it's an estate settlement. I have to distribute the funds. Sometimes the trust will say, please distribute in kind, meaning please distribute the stocks. Don't sell off everything. In other trusts, it's more appropriate to sell everything off because we can't deal with the volatility of the market until we finally get to an opportunity to actually write the checks and distribute the money. Again, the purpose of the trust really matters. When I have an ongoing trust where I'm supposed to make sure that this beneficiary doesn't run out of money for their lifetime, I share a lot of information with that financial advisor. And maybe they even have a team so that we can talk about the investments, not just about what's going to make the most money in the moment, but how can we sustain this person and make sure their needs get met for the next several decades? And we do that by producing a cash flow projection and sharing all of the income and all of everything. For instance, some financial advisors are only focused on the portfolio that they're managing. Oh, but I have real estate. I have other investments. There may be partnerships, LLCs, an ongoing business entity. There may be other things that I have to consider. And the financial portfolio is only a piece of it. The communication and letting the investment advisors know what they are managing the money for is a great way to avoid any sort of toe stubs on the way from here to there. On the distribution side, which is an area where there's a lot of controversy, sometimes it's very clearly spelled out in the trust, and that's very useful in communicating to the beneficiaries because there's a very clear roadmap of what's happening. But occasionally there are discretionary decisions that are made, and there are times when beneficiaries can ask for more than is set out as a formula within the trust. What's your thought process on that? I would imagine that you have a structure around receiving distribution requests so that when you make a decision, you have it documented and it's something that can be defended if there was a problem that came up or a controversy later on. Any wisdom around that process? And is it different maybe for an individual trustee than maybe from a corporate trustee? I think both corporate and individual want to be sure that we're making distributions per the trust document. 
very often there's a standard. Health, education, maintenance, support, those tend to be the words that we see in the trust document. But then there's an underlying detail. If I'm aware that a beneficiary might be receiving public benefits, we have to be very cautious about how they get funding from the trust. In other cases, we have to wait until someone's achieved a certain age. Maybe we can pay for certain things for them, but they don't actually get any cash in their hand until they reach that particular age. Depending on what the trust says, generally speaking, I like to receive requests in writing for funding. That way I have good documentation about what they asked for and how they asked for it and what my response was based on the trust document. Again, for some people, once we determine appropriate stipend, it's automatic. They just get that payment every month. And perhaps we're able to raise that stipend depending on how the rest of the trust goes. So there's a lot of variety here. And I think for the trustors, if you're planning on getting your estate plan done anytime soon, please talk to your attorney thoroughly about your expectations. Are you concerned about this person misusing the funds? Are you worried that this person is just going to give all the money that you earned to the spouse you don't like? You know, consider how it's going to play when you are not the one in the driver's seat. And give those instructions and make sure that your trustee actually gets the detail and even your why that you have it set up that way. I want to get your thoughts on what 2021 looks like from legislative perspective. What are you worried about? Federally, it's a bit of a crystal ball. We're worried about federal estate tax exemptions and things like that. What are you seeing in California specifically that you're thinking about in 2021 that California residents in particular should keep an eye out, either from a toolbox perspective or a reduction in effectiveness in current techniques perspective? Well, I want to start first with those people that own income producing property. I have a number of clients that have several apartment buildings, commercial property, um, rentals, also big malls and stores and stuff like that. Right now, from a landlord's perspective, things are very difficult because of COVID. There's a moratorium on evictions. So being able to communicate with your tenants to find out where your tenants are at, are they able to keep their businesses going? Tax concerns are real, and I understand that. But in terms of the state and in terms of the way 2021 is shaping up, I think that we're going to be stuck with this COVID environment for at least the whole year, maybe even going into 2022. I've been successful as the trustee of a large matter that has those apartment buildings because we went ahead and started communicating with the tenants immediately about their opportunity to defer rent as opposed to skip rent payments. I have a real heart for people that have built up their businesses and they want them to continue beyond their own lifetime. And I'm really thinking about that trustor who wants to be sure that the tenants are taken care of. A lot of these family businesses need that continuity. So I can't really speak to what the legislative body is going to do, but I can say that we're still in uncertainty and I'm very concerned about that uncertainty now. So I'm holding on to cash where I can. I'm trying to minimize expenses and I'm just keeping my ear to the ground and keeping in touch with the professionals I know so that they inform me when they see something on the horizon as soon as they see it. Extremely similar to what we're seeing in New York. I'm here in New York City and you look around and you're saying the buildings are 10% full at the commercial level. That's not going to augur well, ultimately, for a lot of people, either at the trust level or at the ownership level, et cetera. So that's a really good point. I like that a lot. Before we start into the sign-off mode here, what are a couple fun things that you like to do in your spare time? We've all been very serious about trustee issues and taking care of other people. What do you do to have fun for yourself? 
I personally have moved to a 55 plus community. I got a single story house. So I've been involved in homemaking and really feathering my nest a bit and making it nice. That's what I've been doing for fun recently. Mostly I love to read and I really enjoy time with my husband and we have six children. So I have a lot of people to love and I'm very fortunate that they love me back. You are also very involved with the Independent Trustee Alliance. Maybe talk to us a little bit about what that is and how that can be of useful resources to people. The Independent Trustee Alliance, and you can learn more at trusteealliance.com, is an organization designed to support the work of independent trustees. Trust officers, trust companies and banks are certainly welcome to join. Attorneys who write estate plans are welcome to join. Family member trustees are welcome to join. What's amazing is that we've built some benefits for our members that you can't find anywhere else. Being a member is about $150 a year, and that includes all of your necessary MCLE continuing education, which is a wonderful benefit. There's group health insurance available. There's liability insurance available. This organization is designed to support, because it's sometimes a lonely job. There's so much to do. There's so much expectation. People expect you to be able to get things done immediately. And sometimes you really just need a mentor. You need another trustee to talk with so that you can figure things out. And we have open discussions from time to time. We have great webinars available. So if you're thinking about doing the work as trustee, or if you're not sure who to pick as a trustee and you want to understand more about the role, check out trusteealliance.com. This has been a lot of really useful information packed into a really short time. I really appreciate you being on, Marguerite. How do we keep track of you? How do we reach you? And how do we get your book? Well, thank you so much. I'm on LinkedIn. Find me under California Trustee. My book is available on Amazon. The title, again, is Ethics for Trustees 2.0. We hope to have an ebook format soon. So if that's a barrier for you, just hang tight. We'll have that ebook. I can be found at mytrustee.net. Again, that's my T R U S T E E dot N E T. That is my company website, and you can keep track of me there. Terrific. And for everyone, all of that information I'll have in the show notes as well. So you'll be able to see it there and you'll be able to buy the book directly from the website. Marguerite, thank you very much for coming on and good luck as we soldier on into a crazy 2021. Well, and I hope to see you again, Fraser, because we only touched the tip of the iceberg in terms of trusteeship and maybe we get a chance later in the year to talk again. Absolutely. Well, on California issues, you're my go-to. So thank you very much. Thanks, Fraser. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.